from Washington, D.C. and around the world. This is Government Matters with Mimi Gerges. This is Government Matters, the only show covering the latest news trends and topics that matter to the business of government. I'm Mimi Gerges. The Biden administration expects to nominate a permanent leader for controller at the Office of Management and Budget. That position has been vacant for nearly five years. President Biden plans to pick Laurel Blatchford, the former development chief of staff for the Department of Housing and Urban Development. The Government Accountability Office finds that agencies had a large range of safety and return to office plans over the last 18 months of the pandemic. GAO reports that most agencies have not addressed every aspect of guidance that OPM and OMB released in April 2020. According to the report, all agencies developed phased reentry approaches, but the progress through each phase varied by department. Updated guidance from the Safer Federal Workforce Task Force asks agency to continue oversight and coordination efforts. President Biden has nominated Jessica Rosenworcel to be the permanent chair of the FCC. She's currently serving as the acting chairwoman. If the Senate confirms her, Rosenworcel will be the first woman to lead the agency. President Biden also nominated Gigi Son as a commissioner. The nominations come at a pivotal time for the FCC as Democrats push to revive the debate over net neutrality and broadband access. The Partnership for Public Service has announced the winners of this year's Service to America medals. The program celebrates the hard work of federal employees who have benefited the health, safety and the prosperity of the U.S. Max Dyer is the president and CEO of the Partnership for Public Service. Max, nice to see you. Pleasure. So the SAMIs, as they're called, are considered like the Oscars of federal service. Tell me about this award and what kind of work that you're looking to recognize. Great. So they're, they're the Samuel J. Heyman Service to America medals, and I think they're better than the Oscars because these are actually people that fundamentally have improved the lives of Americans in dramatic ways. And we started this program at the very first year of the organization. This is our 20th anniversary. So it's the 20th anniversary of the Sammies themselves. And what we recognized was that we needed to recognize extraordinary service in our government if we wanted to have the kind of public service um, that is necessary to deal with the problems in the world. So our basic theory was and is that um, you are going to get a better government if you uh, honor and recognize the great things that are occurring. No organization gets better if all you do is kick it. Uh, you need to treat the people well, and, and this is the way to do it. So who are some of the standout winners for you? Like what, what, did, what are some of the things that they accomplished? Well, it's, you know, it really is an extraordinary range of, of amazing people. We are obviously still with uh, going, dealing with a pandemic um, you know, many, many Americans have had vaccines, many more still need to do it. We would not have the vaccines that we're using right now without um, doctors Corbett and Graham's work from the NIH. Uh, they built upon 40 years of work that was done at NIH. And essentially, uh, in the course of just a, a couple of few days, designed the vaccines that then got tested and that are being used um, across this country and the world. I mean, hard to imagine a sort of more impactful um, contribution to our society than the work of those two federal employees of the year. Evan Quirrell is the um, career achievement winner. Uh, he designed the uh, spectrum auctions at the FCC 
that has resulted in $200 billion plus going to the U.S. Treasury and the efficient use of Spectrum, which is vital to everything we do right now, even in a pandemic, even more so. Um, unbelievable yep. contribution. So We spoke to him actually on this program, uh, Mr. Quirrell. So the COVID-19 response medal, that's new for this year. What, what was the decision process behind adding that medal and who are the winners this year? Sure, so um, our view uh, again is that we wanna recognize um, the amazing uh, public servants who are doing something that, that's meaningful to the public. And that changes from time to time. Um, after 9-11, we actually had a 9-11 medal because there were so many federal employees that were so fundamental in our response to um, that catastrophe. And same thing here, we realized that there was no more important challenge we faced as a nation than the pandemic. So let's make sure we are specifically calling out the amazing achievements of people who are responding to that. And in this instance, um, we have a, again, a team uh, of NIH scientists who are ensuring that we have um, adequate uh, and, and effective testing of vaccines for diverse communities, a recognition that um, we need to be able to ensure that the vaccine works for everybody. And to do that, we have to test um, diverse uh, participants in the different studies. And so it really is an extraordinary group of people across the board. Uh, you know, you, you look at them and you're like, wow, we are, we are lucky as a country to have these people. And we need to make sure we're um, recognizing them here now and, and ensuring that there's a next generation of public servants coming after them. The Spirit of Service Award is going to Laureen Powell Jobs this year. What is that award and what is she being recognized for? So, um, you know, big problems require government to respond in, in dramatic ways, which our, you know, our government honorees are doing. We also know that the private sector matters. And so uh, we started this award several years ago uh, to identify someone who's been a private sector actor, who's been fundamental in dealing with problems that have public import and works effectively with government. As you just noted, Lorraine Powell Jobs is the winner this year, and she started the Emerson Collective. It's actually built on this notion that we need collective action to solve our big problems. And she has been involved in a whole range of critical issues from uh, access to education to um, concerns around immigration uh, to violence uh, in, in Chicago. I mean, she really has done a remarkable job of um, ensuring that the, the private sector is addressing public problems in a, in a powerful way. Max, I wonder what's the most important thing you want people to know who might not be government employees about the service that federal employees provide to the nation? So most important thing I think is to, to recognize that um, our democracy really in fact depends upon having an effective government and an effective government means great public servants. It's about people, it's not about buildings. And if we want um, our government to be there when we need it, to meet big challenges, we need to invest in it. Everyone likes to deal with government around their policy preferences. At the end of the day, the policy preferences are only meaningful if government can be effective in delivering on them. And that requires support from the American people for their public servants. All right, well, Max, thanks so much and enjoy the gala tonight. Thank you so much. Coming next, U.S. relations with China have sunk to a historic low. Still ahead on Government Matters, what the Pentagon can do to establish and maintain open communication with China's armed forces. You're watching WJLA 24-7 News.
U.S.-Chinese relations have sunk to a historic low. To prevent miscalculations and outright catastrophe, open communications must be established and maintained between the Pentagon and China's armed forces. That's according to Chris Lee. He's the director of research for the Indo-Pacific Security Project at Harvard University. Chris, welcome to the program. Thanks, Mimi. Good morning. It's great to be with you. So what's the current state of U.S.-Chinese military engagement? So right now, since the beginning of the Biden administration, essentially there has been no communication between the Chinese and the U.S. militaries at the most senior operational levels. We've seen, I think, uh, certain engagements between the deputy assistant secretary level and uh, two-star level, one-star level of the People's Liberation Army. But essentially at the command level, the secretary of defense, the deputy secretary of defense, have not met with their counterparts and they're you know in the public record has been no interaction and no meetings between any of the operational commanders and that's really concerning right now so you write that there's the danger of miscalculation and that danger goes up without engagement what could happen give me the worst case scenario that's correct. And, you know, I think the worst case scenario actually is not so hypothetical. Um, in the piece, we actually cite uh, the case in 2001 where a U.S. EP-3 reconnaissance plane uh, accidentally collided with a PLA fighter jet, which led to a diplomatic showdown over many days. Um, the danger, I think, is something that recurs today uh, when tensions are higher, when there's nationalistic pressure at home, and there's very little communication between militaries. And I think those uh, familiar with the war planning process understand that sometimes uh, as because of an accident or because of a miscalculation, escalation can occur rapidly. And so I think the most dangerous scenario would be an unanticipated accidental collision, for example, over the South China Sea, uh, over the Taiwan Strait, that then because of the lack of communication begins to escalate and could even in the worst scenario lead to an all-out war between the U.S. and China. Does the Chinese military want to engage with, the, with their U.S. counterparts? Are they motivated? It's a great question. And I think in the past, uh, military leaders from the U.S. side have noticed over and over again that actually the Chinese side is very reticent and they are uh, pretty reluctant to engage uh, and to come to the table and actually discuss candidly capabilities. I think, however, that that is changing. Um, in 2017, then Chairman of the Joint Chiefs Joe Dunford actually made a pretty uh, a pretty surprising visit to China, where he was even given a meeting with Xi Jinping, China's leader, um, and had pretty candid talks uh, about military and military to military communications. So I think that for several reasons, uh, that is changing, and that it is more likely that in the future we might be able to see uh, greater opportunities for communication. I think first. Uh, there is the fact that China's capabilities have basically uh, reached um, a certain pinnacle point uh, where they're no longer afraid of coming to the table because, uh, you know, it, it's pretty much a recognized consensus that the People's Liberation Army is a pure competitor. I think second uh, is the fact that prior uh, to the last couple of years, um, the idea of military-to-military -military talks, a hotline, would evoke Cold War comparisons, and that's something that both the United States and the Chinese government uh, oppose, and they don't want to characterize the relationship as a Cold War, a new Cold War. Uh, but because of the recent shift in the Washington consensus of seeing China as a competitor, seeing it as an adversary even, um, I think that's also uh, becoming a moot point. So I think that, you know, there's actually reason to be optimism, cautious, uh, reason to be optimistic cautiously uh, that there could be opportunity opportunity for greater communication in the future. 
so then how does the Pentagon go about creating those links um, and those relationships, given that they might not be totally motivated to meet with the Americans, and also that the Chinese military is just structured differently than the American military? I think there has to be a starting point that is speaking or communicating for the sake of opening those lines of dialogue is important inherently. And that's not always the case in diplomacy, but in the military space, I think usually lack of communication, especially between operational levels, and command levels, almost inevitably will lead to miscalculation and misjudgment. I think that there has to also be a degree of flexibility on both sides. Um, but from the US side, because the, the military command structure uh, and the civilian leadership structure is very different in the Chinese system, I think the Department of Defense uh, needs to have a degree of flexibility with who they're meeting with. Um, and for example, there have been reports uh, over the past year uh, that the Secretary of Defense, Lloyd Austin, uh, who sought to meet with his uh, essentially what he believed his functional counterpart, the vice chairman of the Central Military Commission, and those meetings were denied. And instead, he was offered a meeting with the defense minister in the Chinese system, who's more junior. Um, I, I think that, you know, there are, there are uh, reasonable um, uh, considerations about who the meetings are with, but in general, starting off with at least one meeting and then working progressively to establish those lines of communication to attain further meetings, I think is a good way to approach, uh, approach communication with the Chinese military. You know, Chris, I wanted to ask you that, you know, the Chinese have said that war with the United States is inevitable. Are they just posturing or do they really believe that? I think that, um, so, so I would argue that war is not inevitable and by no means. I think there have been academics who but, have- But do they at, believe it? That's my question. Yes, I, I think that, you know, I, I, I don't necessarily know if all of the Chinese leaders believe that. I certainly think that they will see, they, they, they see that the way that tensions, the way that the bilateral relationship is progressing, that uh, things will get worse. I think they're probably clear-eyed about that. Um, I, I do think, though, that in my view, war is not inevitable at all. And in fact, um, President Xi's, you know, so-called new form of great power relations is a response to the idea that during the Cold War, uh, a Cold War was inevitable, that military conflict would be inevitable. And I think that, therefore, it becomes incumbent on leaders in Washington, D.C. and in Beijing to think about what their new strategy, what their new framework could be so that we don't fall into the old uh, history and the old outcomes as usual. All right. Well, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks, Amy. Coming next, improving services for participants in the Thrift Savings Plan. Straight ahead on Government Matters, the latest on the Converge program and modernizing TSP for federal employees. We'll be right back.
The Thrift Savings Plan will improve its participant services with the Converge program, offering online tools to help federal employees manage their accounts. Converge will also enhance its security to align with a better cyber posture. Kim Weaver is Director of External Affairs at the Federal Retirement Thrift Investment Board. Kim, welcome to the program. Thank you. Thank you for having me. So tell me about TSP's Converge program. What are the newest developments? What are some of the benefits? Well, we are combining our record keeping contract with our call centers and our service bureau that processes our forms and our withdrawals. And we're, we're combining all of that into one contract, which was awarded in November of 2020. So at our board meeting in October, we gave our board um, an update on that transition. We are scheduled to go live in the summer of 2022. So I understand that Converge is getting improved services to detect and monitor fraud. Uh, has yeah. cybersecurity been a problem? And and talk about why that's important. It has, it has not been a problem in terms of our participants. It is a problem as it is with all entities who are trying to keep um, their enterprise and their customers or participants secure. Uh, and we are always looking for ways to make um, our participants accounts more secure. And so the Converge vendor will be offering new ways to verify participants. And in addition, we're gonna be offering a mobile app. So to the extent that you have biometrics on your phone, you can use your face or your fingerprint to access your bank account you'll be able to do that for your TSP account. So we're just always on the lookout for ways to make our participants' accounts more secure. You had mentioned that your go live is planned for summer of 2022. Are you gonna meet that deadline and what are you doing to make sure that Converge gets out there on time? We are doing everything humanly possible. Yes, we are gonna meet the deadline. Um, but as you might imagine, it is quite, uh, quite an uh, undertaking so we have multiple work streams going. We're working with payroll offices to make sure that they're gonna be able to uh, transmit the payroll records to the right spot and that we'll be able to intake them. We've been making sure that the data that we'll be uh, transmitting to the new vendor is clean and good to go. There's just a whole lot of work going on, but we will meet the deadline. I understand that there's also um, the Converge will have a mutual fund window. How does that yes. expand options then for participants? Uh, why are you looking forward to that? Well, a mutual fund window allows participants to go as through the window and invest in uh, more than 5,000 mutual funds. And we have five core funds that cover the marketplace in terms of uh, U.S. stocks, small and large stocks. We've got international, we've got um, corporate bonds, but the mutual fund allows participants who want something different or extra to do that. Um, and they can go through the window, they can make those choices in the mutual fund. Um, they will be able to access the mutual fund through their TSP My account. And there will be um, a separate support for the mutual fund um, if people are interested. They don't have to, but it's a choice that they can make. You're coordinating with 92 partner agencies. Um, that's a lot. Uh, how has that been going for you? And um, have you faced any challenges with that? 
not luckily we have very good relationships with our our the payroll agencies because we work with them uh, literally on a daily basis for to take in information so it's gone very well and we've given them we know everyone is busy and we know everyone else has their own priorities so we have been giving agencies as much lead time as we possibly can to get prepared for the transition and do the testing that we want to get done so that we're sure that when we do go live next summer, everything is working seamlessly. And Kim, you recently conducted a participant uh, feedback survey. What did you find out? We found that generally participants are satisfied with the TSP. They're always looking for more education and that's something that we're always working on and looking what more can we provide? What additional tools can we help participants with both to save, which is important, but as our as our participants are, are um, hitting retirement age, the TSP was created in 1986, so people are now ready to start withdrawing. Um, we also need to provide people with tools on how to best um, start withdrawing their TSP money without outliving it, and that, of course, is the trick. All right. Well, Kim, thanks for the update, and we will check it check back in with you soon. Great. Look forward to talking to you. If you miss an episode of Government Matters, it's on our website, govmatters.tv. And tell us what you thought about today's program. You can reach us on Twitter at GovMattersTV. Follow us to get the latest updates, reminders, and links to video segments. That's the latest from Washington. Join me weeknights at 8 and 10.30 on WJLA 24-7 News and Sunday mornings at 10.30 on 7 News to stay plugged in on issues that matter to the business of government. Thanks for watching. I'm Mimi Gerges.